Our scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and they followed, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes from the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Word of the Lord. Lord bless you. Surprise. Uh, before I begin, I just want to uh, just remind you, this is our last week of uh, our Lenten practice together on Wednesday evenings. And so I want to just again ask you all to uh, join us uh, for prayers at 9 o'clock. Uh, we're going to finish the book of Psalms uh, this Wednesday. Also for this week's uh, giving, I'm going to ask you, instead of giving on Wednesday this week, to uh, prepare an offering for Next Sunday, uh, we're going to hear from uh, Austin today about Neighbor Corps, and we're going to uh, ask to designate your giving this week uh, to that uh, ministry. And finally, uh, if those of you who are fasting um, on Wednesday, uh, I want to encourage you to fast uh, on Friday, uh, as it's Good Friday, or you can fast both days or three days, but I want to encourage you to fast uh, on Friday, if possible, uh, this week. Uh, in addition to the usual prayers, um, I would ask for prayers. Uh, regarding our uh, mission teams to both Kenya and to the DR, uh, as well as our search for a, an associate pastor or the director of Christian education. So if you could keep those uh, things in mind in your prayers and fasting this week, um, that would be great. All right, uh, please pray with me. Lord, thank you uh, for this day that you have made. And now in the hearing of your word, we ask that you would speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, Speak your word to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So it's been uh, pointed out that in the Gospel of Matthew, um, there are a number of different ways to think about the book, different ways to uh, divide the book. And one of the ways that you can divide the book is to divide it into three parts separated by this phrase. From that time, Jesus began. From that time, Jesus began. So in the very first part of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, as Jesus prepares for his ministry, and right after he is baptized, right after he is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Matthew 4.17 tells us, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then from 4.17 all the way to chapter 16.21 is the middle part of the gospel. And chapters 4 through 16 is really the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. 
And that section ends with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the hands uh, of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and rise again on the third day. And so in this last part now, that's where we are, Jesus will tell his disciples two more times that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be raised again. In other words, Jesus does not end up in Jerusalem by accident. He is not betrayed unexpectedly. He is not a failed revolutionary zealot. He is not an unwitting pawn in the political schemes of those around him. On the contrary, Jesus knows, and he will state later, that Jerusalem is a city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And yet still, Jesus intentionally chooses this particular moment, this particular day, to enter into Jerusalem in this particular way. He's been to Jerusalem before. It's likely he went every year with his family, and he probably walked into the city every year like every other pilgrim to the city. But this last time, this last time into the city, he does not walk. Instead, he makes very careful arrangements for a ride. Pilgrims walk, but kings ride. Kings do not walk. And so he sends two of his disciples with a password. The Lord needs them to fetch his ride, and he enters the city to great acclaim. Now, most of you have heard this story many, many times. Every year on this particular Sunday, uh, although I haven't preached on it in a number of years, um, you hear regularly about this so-called triumphal entry. And so you know that Jesus' entry into the city, not on horseback, but on donkey back or a colt back, has prophetic significance. Matthew points this out, that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, by the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a beast of burden. This is just one of 10 fulfillment passages that Matthew points out to convince us that this indeed is the promised king, the Messiah. And by this action, in this moment, by riding a donkey, Jesus clearly and publicly acknowledges his identity and mission. He is the promised king. He is the son of David. But unlike all other traditional and conquering kings, he comes instead in peace. Not on a war stallion, but on a donkey. A couple of hundred years earlier, Simon Maccabeus defeated the enemies of Israel and rode in triumph into the city on a horse. And a century before him, Alexander the Great entered the city upon his famous war horse, Bucephalus, his uh, stallion. That's what conquering kings do. It's, it's a show of power, right? It's a show of power. And had Jesus wanted to show power, to oppose Rome, to lead rebellion or revolution, he would have ridden a horse. But as Zechariah prophesied, behold, your king is coming to you, your king, 
but he comes humble and mounted on a donkey. Matthew then tells us further in uh, verse 10 that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? The whole city was stirred up. Now, the the city of Jerusalem uh, was a pretty small city by our standards today, probably between 25,000 to 50,000 inhabitants. Uh, Just to give you some idea of what that's like, uh, I looked up Princeton has a a 31,000 population, and New Brunswick is 56,000, so some, somewhere between those two uh, places. Although Jerusalem itself is a much uh, smaller uh, land area, and so it would be much more uh, crowded, um, but you get at least some sense of, uh, of that size. And I should also note, during the holidays, of course, like, like Passover, uh, with, with many, many pilgrims, the uh, population would swell to you know, five times that size easily. Um, so it's, it's going to be quite crowded. Uh, it's going to be a lot of people. And so even though a crowd is following Jesus, they were probably not large enough to cause anything remotely interesting to most people. If it was large enough, the Romans certainly would have stamped out that immediately as a potential threat. What we have labeled as a triumphal entry may have felt that way to those who are accompanying Jesus, right? Like when you're part of the parade, it feels much bigger than it actually might be. But hardly anyone else seemed to have noticed. It's like in your own town, do you know about every little parade, every gathering of 100 people or so in your town? Do you know all the news of some minor celebrity coming to town? If you saw a group of uh, 100 people or more you know, marching down Main Street, would you even pay attention? Maybe you would ask, you know, who is that? What's going on? And that would be about it. So Matthew's hyperbole here in saying that the whole city was stirred up is making a larger theological point. This is not the first nor the last time that Matthew tells us that the entire city has been stirred up. The word stirred up, by the way, uh, is the word in English from which we get seismic. So, you know, really shaken, stirred up, earthquake. You might remember that back in chapter 2, when Jesus was born, when the Magi came looking for Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews, right? So he's the king. He's identified as a king in the very beginning. We were told that King Herod was shaken, same word, and all Jerusalem with him. On Good Friday, Jerusalem will once more be shaken when Jesus dies on the cross. And then Matthew will tell us once more that at the resurrection, the earth will once more quake. Matthew here, I think, is trying to tell us this fundamental, universal, seismic shift that the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus creates in the hearts and in the lives of everyone, of the whole city. And so this question still has relevance for us and remains with us, right? This question, who is this? It may be the most important question that you have to answer for yourself. Who is this Jesus, this one whom the crowds have acclaimed as the king, the one who is going to save us now? Who is this? Mounted on a donkey. 
In today's reading, the Galilean crowds, the ones who had been following him, the ones who had witnessed his teachings, who had witnessed his miraculous works, his exorcisms, the feeding of the 5,000, and so on, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us now. And, And the crowds mistakenly looked to him to save them now from the oppression of the Romans. And the crowds then told the residents of Jerusalem when they asked, who is this? This is the prophet Jesus, the Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee. That's a better answer, but it's far from complete. Matthew has told us that Jesus is far more than a prophet or even the prophet. Matthew began his gospel This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the Christ, the Messiah. He's the son of David, the king, in the long royal line, and the son of Abraham, the father of the faith. And Matthew concluded that genealogy in chapter 1 by saying, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ the anointed one, the Messiah. Before his birth, the angels then tell Joseph that Mary will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's the name Jesus. That's what it means. Not only will he be called that, but he will also be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us, that in this person, Jesus, God will be with us. And the Magi call him the king of the Jews. And John the baptizer said, he is one who is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His identity gets further revealed to us in his baptism when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Matthew describes throughout his teachings that this is, this Jesus is a great teacher, greater than Moses, a powerful healer. And when Jesus himself asks this question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus acknowledged that as true, though Peter himself didn't fully understand what that meant. And so we we have a much fuller picture of who this is. But for the people that day, it was being revealed to them for the first time in this moment. I think for people of faith, this is what happens. How we answer the question, who is this, might be the same year to year. We might say Jesus is the Messiah, he's the son of God, but what we mean by those words will certainly change from year to year. You know, this past week, I asked the, um, the students in the confirmation class to write out their personal creeds. What is it that you believe about your faith, about Christianity, about Jesus? Like, tell me what it is that you believe as of today. And like Peter, many of them wrote out very doctrinally correct statements. It was good. In 10 years time, 20 years time, 50 years from now, they may write the same words maybe a little improvement grammatically, but they might say the same ideas, right? But hopefully as their faith grows, 
their words of confession will take on a deeper meaning because that's the nature of relationships. It's like when I say something like, you know, that I am the husband of Kyung. What I mean by husband and what I mean by Kyung has changed over the years. When I said it for the first time nearly 29 years ago, and when I say it now, those words, I mean, it's the same word, but they mean vastly different things to me. It's not that my position has changed in any legal sense. Under the law, according to my marriage license, which I think we have somewhere, I was her husband then, and I'm still her husband now. But my understanding has changed because that's the nature of relationships. And faith is the same. Faith is not like a relationship. It is a relationship. A relationship with the triune God. And so who is this? We can say he is Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the Messiah. And in the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse of a future that one day Jesus will return and he will ride upon a white horse with righteous judgment and he will have written on his robes and on his thigh the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But today, today, Jesus as he is about to enter into the last week of his life, he comes riding on a donkey as the humble savior and king. Um, We're going to hear a little bit later uh, about the need for uh, rides uh, from Austin again uh, in a bit. And so I got thinking about donkeys uh, this week as part of this. And and I want to say a few words about donkeys. Uh, of course, we don't ride them today. Um, but I, I suspect all of you, or most of us anyway, we have a low opinion of donkeys, right? I mean, when you think of the word donkey, the kinds of words that we associate with it, it's generally negative, right? The first, um, for me, when I first hear it, this is weird, but when I first hear the word donkey, the first image that comes to mind is Pinocchio, from the, from the Disney movie where uh, Pinocchio, right, he's supposed to go to school, but he plays hooky, that the fox tempts him, and he ends up on Pleasure Island where he's like, um, what does he do? He, he smokes a cigar. He um, plays billiards, you know, um, like those are like really bad sins. And so he, he ends up literally turning into a donkey, right? The, the word donkey and other words related to that, if you know what I mean, right, means someone kind of, you know, stupid or, you know, it has all kind of negative um, connotations. Um, Maybe some of you younger folks are thinking of donkey in Shrek. It's a little more clever, a little more positive. I don't know. Um, So I spent some time, uh, (laughs) this is what I do, uh, looking up donkeys in the scriptures. And in addition to the mention here today in Zechariah, I was surprised actually that the donkey shows up quite a bit in the scriptures. Uh, Samson, for example, you might recall, he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. In the story of Joseph and his brothers and in other stories where people are traveling or, or carrying stuff, 
somehow I, I had imagined in my mind that people are always traveling on camels. Um, but when you read, it actually says that they traveled back and forth from Canaan to Egypt, Joseph and his brothers, on donkeys. And I had also forgotten uh, that donkeys are listed among the possessions that we are not to covet in the Ten Commandments. Exodus twenty seventeen: you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I mean, it gets singled out, a head of sheep. Donkeys were very valuable assets. Did you see what I did there? Okay. But maybe the most important or the most famous donkey of all is probably Balaam's donkey. You remember that story? Balaam had been invited to come and curse the Israelites, even though God told him not to. And so on his way to curse the Israelites, his donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a, with a drawn sword. And so the donkeys, you know, swerved and tried to avoid getting his master killed. And each time that the donkey moved out of the way, Balaam would, would, would beat the donkey, saying, what are you doing? Three times he did that. Until finally the donkey just sat down. And then God allowed the donkey to speak. And I mean, it's, it's one of those really goofy stories, right? Because Balaam's not even phased by the fact that his donkey is talking to him in, in I don't know, Aramaic or whatever, right? Just talking to him. And, and he's arguing with, with you know, why did you do that? And the donkey in his defense says, have I ever wronged you? Have I ever done something against you? And then Balaam's eyes are finally opened and he sees the angel of the Lord, and that had he continued straight on the path, he would have died. All this is to say that donkeys are not a source of derision as they are today, but in the scriptures, they were amazing and very valuable animals. So in my mind, a king riding a donkey is a little bit like the president riding a minivan. Now, I know I've had a number of conversations with many of you here over the years, and you know who you are. You have vehemently resisted driving, purchasing, or even being seen near a minivan. You have this incredible disdain for the minivan, which I never understood, because as you know, it is my favorite car ever since I learned how to drive. Still is. Because it's so useful. Right? A lot of people can ride it. It can carry a lot of stuff. That's pretty much all I want my car to do. <laughs> That's what donkeys are. What the Lord needs, right, is not a war horse. He doesn't need a horse that can win the Kentucky Derby. He needs the donkey, not a limousine. And perhaps that's the lesson for us. I hope you're not insulted being compared to a donkey. Jesus does not need super disciples. After all, his very first group of disciples, they weren't much to talk about, right? Jesus calls ordinary disciples to do ordinary work. Most of the time, 
most of our work is just so. Remember last week, Jesus commended those who did some very, very basic, very, very small acts of mercy and compassion. Basic human decency. The lowest possible bar in terms of human compassion. Not some enormous, gigantic, praiseworthy work. But the giving of a cup of water, a meal, visiting someone when they're sick or in prison. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Let me close with this. There are a lot more examples of donkeys in the scriptures. But the one that stood out for me this week and that I want to leave you with is a donkey from Genesis 22 in the story of Abraham making that three-day trip with Isaac to Mount Moriah. And Abraham took a donkey, we are told, to carry the firewood for the intended sacrifice of his son Isaac. Now, in my mind, I imagine as they're making that trek, that at least for a part of the way, Isaac is riding that donkey as Abraham walks heavy-hearted, pondering about what he has to do. And it makes me wonder if on this day, if Jesus himself was not thinking about that story. Matthew doesn't tell us, but the story of Isaac ultimately points to and foreshadows this moment in the life of Jesus. Just as the earlier donkey had carried what was needed for a sacrifice, so now Jesus himself becomes that sacrifice. Just as Abraham had placed wood on the shoulders of his son, Jesus also now will have the wood of the cross placed upon him. The critical difference, of course, is that Father Abraham was spared from sacrificing his beloved, his only son. But God the Father will not spare his only son. But he himself will give himself for us that we might be saved. And when Isaac had asked Abraham, his father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham had answered prophetically, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And that word will be fulfilled. Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. All the people who witnessed that day of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey did not understand what was happening. What the people of Jerusalem did not know, what the Galilean crowds who followed him did not realize, and what his own disciples did not comprehend until after Jesus had been raised from the dead, is that indeed, Jesus is going to save them. Their cries of Hosanna, save us now, will be answered. But it's not the deliverance from the Romans as they had imagined. It's deliverance from ourselves, from our sins, that would be taken on the cross. And it's only in that sense this day that this is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Rejoice, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this day and a reminder of your willingness to enter Jerusalem 
knowing what awaited you. Thank you that you will save and that you will triumph. And God, as we look forward now to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday, keep us more mindful of the humble life to which you have called us to and which you yourself exemplified. You are the king. Help us to grow into what that means for us and to live that out. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.